all gathered round They gazed in wide wonder At the joy they had found The head nurse spoke up Said leave this one alone She could tell right away Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is March 10th, 2013, and I'm your host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is Bad to the Bone. We're back to our usual format after last week's sweet episode called Honey Honey with Dr. Anthony Crocco. No, today you just have me. So let's get right into it and start with our case scenario. We have a 62-year-old man who presents to the emergency department feeling weak, or as I like to say, weak. His vital signs at triage are normal, but his glucometer is reading high. He is a known type 2 diabetic and states his sugars have been running a little high lately. After conducting an appropriate history and a directed physical examination, you have not yet determined the cause of his generalized weakness. There's nothing to suggest a respiratory or urinary tract infection. Now, before you leave the room, though, you're smart enough to take off the patient's socks and check out his feet. P.U. What you see and smell is a diabetic foot ulcer on the plantar aspect of his left foot. So the question today is, does this patient with diabetes have osteomyelitis of the lower extremity? Let's do a little background information first, and that is complications from diabetes are common. Yes, you'll see them in the emergency department, and these ED presentations will likely go up in the future rather than down, and that's because the prevalence of diabetes, currently at about 200 million, is projected to increase to 333 million by 2025. More than 30% of diabetics in the U.S. have lower extremity disease, including 7.7% with ulcers. Now, these ulcers can lead to infection, osteomyelitis, and ultimately limb amputation. Diabetic patients are 10 times more likely than non-diabetic patients to require osteomyelitis-related limb amputations. Now, the first step in preventing such amputations would be identifying and treating patients with diabetes. And for some of the references here, you can look at an Annals of Emergency Medicine manuscript, 2009, by me, Ken Milne, and Captain Cranium himself, Dr. Chris Carpenter. The actual reference for this podcast is actually by Butala. Butalia, sorry, Butalia et al. I'm not going to use my Italian accent here, but I think that's an Italian name. Butalia et al. called Does This Patient with Diabetes Have Osteomyelitis of the Lower Extremity? And it was published in JAMA as part of their Rational Clinical Exam uh, series in 2008. Now wait, hold on. Yes, 2008, five years ago. Before I start getting emails and comments from people in Sweden, let's say. Hello, Katrin, how are you? Um, I know what you're thinking. Five years is a long time, and I thought the SGEM's goal was to cut the KT window to down to less than one year. Yes, we are trying very, very hard with the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine to cut the knowledge translation down to one year. 
And I usually quote a reference that say, states that it's a 6 to 13 year window for high quality clinically relevant information to make it into the patient's bedside, with an average being about 10 years. So I'm looking at this as a rather positive situation by cutting it in half. Let's say a 50% relative decrease in knowledge translation, or a 5 year absolute decrease, I hope, if the SJAM listeners listen carefully. So, hopefully I've preempted any emails from those individuals who say, wait a minute, I want to be on the cutting edge. We're still improving that knowledge translation window at five years. So, I've mentioned the reference, now let's look at the PICO. The PICO stands, of course, for Population Intervention Comparison and Outcome. And in this case, the population is diabetic patients with foot infections and suspected osteomyelitis. There really is no intervention or comparison in a diagnostic accuracy study, and the outcome actually is the diagnostic accuracy, the sensitivity, specificity, and likelihood ratios for bedside physical exam, laboratory tests such as white blood count, ESR, and CRP, plain film imaging, and other imaging tests. Now, the authors of this rational clinical exam had used this retrospective study, one retrospective study in particular, which was a chart review of 9,000 patients, suggesting that if a patient did have a foot ulcer, 15% of them would develop osteomyelitis. So they used that as their baseline to look at whether something could uh, diagnose a significant increase or decrease of the likelihood ratio. So they used that 15%. So let's take a look at what the rational clinical exam found for results. Well, first of all, no studies looked at the precision of signs or symptoms. And temperature was only reported in one poor quality study. It was possible, though, to report the test characteristics of a number of items. And I'm going to go through those one at a time. The first one was ulcer size. If the ulcer size was greater than 2 centimeters, for the American audience, 2 centimeters equals 0.79 inches. So if it was greater than 2 centimeters, the positive likelihood ratio was 7.2. So, fairly good. The next one was positive probe to bone test. Positive probe to bone test. Now how did they define that? Well, that was the presence of a hard, gritty material at the wound base when going over it with a blunt, sterile steel probe so that there was no soft tissue between the bone and the probe. So when you stuck that sterile thing into the ulcer, you could scrape up against bone. And that had a positive likelihood ratio of osteomyelitis of 6.4 with a confidence interval of 3.6 to 11. The other item that they discuss is clinical gestalt. Now, unfortunately, they don't define clinical gestalt, but they said clinical gestalt was a positive likelihood ratio of 5.5. A laboratory test they had was ESR, erythromycin sedimentation rate. Now, if the ESR was greater than 70, that had a positive likelihood ratio of 11 with a confidence interval of one6 all the way up to 79, so a fairly wide confidence interval. The next thing they comment on is imaging tests, and an abnormal x-ray result could 
increase the positive likelihood ratio at 2.3. So a small bump in the positive likelihood ratio. But the actual definition of x-ray criteria for osteomyelitis included the focal loss of trabecular bone, periosteal reaction, and finally frank bone destruction. And this was evaluated in 16 studies with um, six prospective ones, including 567 patients. The last thing listed in the table for this diagnostic accuracy study was MRI results. So a positive MRI result had a likelihood ratio, a positive likelihood ratio of 3.8 with a confidence interval of 2.5 to 5.8. Now I have yet to mention any of the negative likelihood ratios because none of the, none of the tests had good negative likelihood ratios except for the MRI result. So if the MIR result was normal, you had a normal MRI, it did have a pretty good negative likelihood ratio, which was 0.14, with a 95% confidence interval between 0.08 to 0.26. So the author's conclusion from this rational clinical exam was as follows, quote, an ulcer area of greater than 2 centimeters a positive probe-to-bone test result, an ESR rate of more than 70, and an abnormal plane radiograph results are helpful in the diagnosing the presence of lower extremity osteomyelitis in patients with diabetes. A negative MRI result makes the diagnosis much less likely when all of these findings are absent. No single historical feature or physical examination reliably excludes osteomyelitis. The diagnosis utility of a combination of findings are unknown. End quote. So from a BEAM perspective, a best evidence in emergency medicine perspective, the comments are that this review attempted to summarize the test characteristics of the history, physical examination, routine available lab tests, and imaging studies, and MRI for the diagnosis of osteomyelitis in a diabetic patient. The review did have a number of limitations, including a search strategy which included English manuscripts only. And of the 21 studies that were ultimately included in this review, only 8 were prospective, and 11 of them, 11 of the 21, were judged to be of poor quality. Clinical gestalt was never clearly defined, and there was no assessment of reliability or a kappa for subjective measures which were reported. None of these studies, and I think this is important, none of these studies were ED-based, raising the problem of external validity. So can you apply these patients and these uh, studies that were included to the emergency population that we see? No attempt was made to create a clinical decision rule, but I don't like to use the word rule, so clinical decision instrument, using a combination of the tests. And finally, no patient-oriented outcomes were assessed in this diagnostic accuracy study, and it is ultimately about patients and patient-oriented outcome. Now, in that comment section there, I did raise some EBM points, but I wanted to focus in on one very specific EBM point, because I'm always trying to slide those into the podcast. And the EBM point I wanted to make on today's review was that these studies included 
in this uh, rational clinical exam series uh, had verification or workup bias. Verification or workup bias. See, the diagnostic performance of the test is determined by comparing it to a gold standard or reference standard. This is the most accurate established test for the disease in question. And in this case, bone biopsy was considered the reference standard for osteomyelitis in the review relative to ulcer size. However, only patients believed to have a high likelihood of disease were fully worked up, i.e., in this case, underwent bone biopsy. This may mean that those patients with a positive result on the test being evaluated, ulcer size, are more likely to have a full evaluation, including a bone biopsy, which can lead to false verification of the ulcer size by measuring only those patients with large ulcers and are more likely to undergo biopsy, whereas those people with small ulcers will either not be included in the data or will be presumed, perhaps falsely, to be disease-negative. The main result of this workup bias or verification bias is that it will incorrectly elevate the test sensitivity and specificity. Now, if you wanted to eliminate this workup or verification bias, all patients with diabetic foot ulcers, regardless of the size of the ulcer, would need to be biopsied for the presence of osteomyelitis. Now, this would be, would be um, both expensive and invasive, making it difficult for researchers and making it also less likely for them to obtain a bone biopsy. So the beam bottom line from this whole podcast is the first thing you do when trying to diagnose osteomyelitis of the lower extremity is determine whether or not the patient is diabetic. An ulcer size of greater than 2 centimeters and a positive bone-to-probe test each significantly increase the likelihood ratio of diabetes-related osteomyelitis. Clinical gestalt was almost as useful as these two things, and an ESR greater than 70 strongly suggests the diagnosis in the correct clinical setting. An abnormal plain film can increase the probability, and only an MRI, a normal MRI, substantially reduces the likelihood ratio and there is no single physical exam finding or test that reliably excludes the diagnosis of osteomyelitis in a diabetic patient. I'd like to finish these with a case resolution. And so in this one, I've put, you ordered the blood work on this diabetic man, including an ESR, which comes back elevated at 77. The plain films are also performed, and they show focal loss of trabecular bone and some periosteal reaction. You make the diagnosis of osteomyelitis and start the man on appropriate antibiotics and consult orthopedics. This brings us to the Keener contest. It was a little disappointing last week. I don't know if it was too tough or not, but the Keener contest, no winners last week. I'm hoping there'll be lots of Keeners this week to try and win the cool skeptical prize that I will mail you if you get the correct answer. Be the first one to email me at thesgem at gmail.com with the answer to the following question. What is Wagner's grading scale for diabetic foot infections? So good luck to all you keeners out there and don't forget to follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and of course, be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you learned it 
on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk with you next week.